Welcome everyone to Just Crypto. My name is Vanessa and we've got a fantastic show for you today. As you know, Just Crypto is all about honest conversations with creators, builders and artists within the crypto community. And our purpose here is to elevate the humanity behind those who are driving our community forward. Uh, so we've got a fantastic show today. Uh, we're going to learn all about Shade Protocol, Private DeFi, really dig into the details. Uh, so without further ado, I'd, I'd like to welcome uh, Carter Wetzel to the show. Carter is the lead researcher and economist for Shade Protocol. Uh, he's the author of the Secret Network White Paper, as well as the book uh, Building Confidence in Blockchain. Uh, Carter, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa, for having me on. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a relatively new fan to the of the show, and it's uh, awesome to be able to hop on, and um, hopefully we can have a great conversation yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Uh, before we get started, I just want to do the usual disclaimer. Uh, nothing here is financial advice. We're going to be talking about you know, crypto uh, protocols and tokens and all sorts of things. Don't take that as an incentive to buy any of these things. We're, we're just here on YouTube. Don't listen to YouTube as for financial advice. Um, <laughs> I, I, I feel like people uh, think we say not financial advice just to CYA. And, and really, it's like, don't wreck yourself, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let us know a little bit about your journey into crypto, Carter. Like, where did you get started? How did you discover this crazy world? Yeah, absolutely. So way back in uh, 2017, even even late 2016, but mostly in 2017, I had a, a cousin reached out to me on LinkedIn and he's in he's in TradFi. He's like as embedded into the traditional finance world as you can get. But uh, he knew that I was a big fan of computer science, big economics guy. And so he forwarded me some links about cryptocurrency and blockchain. And so I started doing research and I, I'm one of those people that I don't really like doing things halfway, right? So I was like, I wanna like buy every book I can get my hands on and like really start to dig in and understand what's going on here. And so I read book after book after book and I, I was taking notes. I was like 30, 40, 50 pages of notes in. And I kind of realized that like most of the books out there were either like way too tech focused or they're way too investment focused. And I was kind of frustrated because I felt like not many of the books out there had struck a good balance between those two worlds. Um, and then I kind of realized, you know what, like I already have 50 pages of notes. Like I feel like maybe I'm actually in the process of writing a book right now by accident, right? Within that journey of trying to find the truth about like what attributes make blockchain valuable and how do you even like think about this from an investment standpoint? I like kind of set out to start writing that book. And so that was a, that was a three-year journey. Uh, from 2017 to 2020, that writing, writing that book that took three years. And during that time, I was able to jump in and observe some like very early stage DeFi projects like Uniswap, uh, like MakerDAO specifically drew my attention because the idea of a stable coin uh, within this world of volatility felt revolutionary and it, it felt like something special. Uh, so I was like pretty, I was a part of that community. I was tracking it closely. And then somewhere around um, 2019, I kind of had like a, a wake up call one day, um, just like doing research and it kind of realized like everything's completely transparent. Like all of these blockchains, like one of the most powerful attributes is that it's totally transparent, but there's a set of trade-offs that come with that total transparency. And so it kind of, it kind of kept bugging me. I'm like, there's gotta be some, like, where are the protocols that have privacy preserving smart contracts? Like, how are we going to have apps if all of this data is exposed? It's like a security risk from like a commerce perspective. Uh, so I eventually uh, got plugged into Secret Network in like 2020, worked with the protocol devs to help write the white paper, spun up a, a validator uh, with a fellow, fellow co-founder. Uh, and within that process of 
becoming a node runner, helping educate the community on this amazing technology, which was groundbreaking at the time and, and still is to, to a degree. Um, kind of realized that like I had a heart for not just educating, but actually wanting to like build and leverage this tech stack. Like here we are with privacy preserving smart contracts, this amazing world of cosmos with interoperability. And like, what if we, what if we could build DeFi on top of this privacy? Like what could that unlock for the world? And so late um, 2021 ended up raising money to be able to start building this journey. And now shape protocol, we're nearing our one year anniversary, which is February 21st. We've launched a bunch of projects and every day we march a little bit closer to a world that's open source, decentralized and private. That's amazing. There's so much there that we're going to get to throughout the show. But I just wanted to comment first one, it resonates so deeply with me that you dive in headfirst into things. Um, but also, you're the first person that I've spoken with who started their crypto journey by essentially writing a book on crypto. So it's quite an impressive uh, uh, feat. Did you did you jump in with Bitcoin and Ethereum or any of those while you were writing the book? Or was it really more an academic exercise for you? Um, no, it was very much a, a usage-based exercise within all of that. Uh, so a lot of Bitcoin usage, a lot of Ethereum usage. I was messing around with Ethereum dApps far earlier than I probably, like, it's one of those things where you're, you're, you're moving money around and trying things when you probably shouldn't, right? But that's part of like the learning curve in crypto, which is it's very, unfortunately, it can be a very expensive learning curve, right? So interacted with all sorts of, of products and really also started to challenge myself. Like, like, how do you evaluate? Like, what is the value of a protocol? Like how, like what, where, where does that value emerge from? Right. And so that was one of the, the, like, how do you, how do you even evaluate blockchain compared to a normal business? Like, is that even possible? So it's quite questions, questions like that emerged. And that was, that was fun. How would you, how would you, you know, talk to folks who have that same question? Like, how do you value a blockchain? How do we know if, uh, you know, one of the top blockchains, Solana, is fairly valued or not versus Cosmos versus something else? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, like the users, like protocol, I like to say, uh, I think I just tweeted this out recently, like protocols are built for users and not the other way around. And at the end of the day, like usage, when everyday folks are using it, for, for commerce or when they're using it as an alternative to other financial products, when they're coalescing their you know, social value in the world of NFTs into crypto and they're spending their time and their energy here. I mean, that's, that's an indicator that like, that we're onto something like really, really good. So at the end of the day, usage metrics are really, really big. Unfortunately in crypto, it's also easy for people to like fake usage <laughs> metrics. So things like that can get a little, a little bit confusing, but um, I think, the regulatory frameworks emerging, which blockchains they're going to be working with, how much usage is tied to those blockchains. Um, that's, that's ultimately where the value is, is born out of because it's kind of like if no one uses a protocol, does it have value, right? Like that's an interesting question. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, right? I don't know. Yeah. Is there, is there a single metric that you would point to to say this is more likely than not to be the one to look at as far as uh, valuing a protocol? Um, I think... A really popular one has been capital in, in on on like the DeFi layers layers like total value locked right TVL, um, but that one's a little bit interesting because you could have hypothetically you could have a billion in TVL but zero users right. Imagine you had like a liquidity pool with a billion dollars there, but if no one's trading across it and no one ever uses it, is that actually is that actually value or is that just capital sitting dormant mm -hmm. locked up in a smart contract? So that's why like 
more and more as DeFi has evolved, there's been an obsession with TVL, but I think eventually we're going to see more a return to an obsession with like user, like how many users are on your platform, how much economic value, what like what's the median economic value that each user is is creating? How often are they using the application? Stuff like that. Um, I think will that's kind of tied to financial reality. So long and short, some hybrid of you know amount of transactions used across what number of users across the value of the capital on that blockchain. I think there's there's some confluence in there that you can start to maybe build out a valuation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I just also wanted to, before we go for the shout out to folks in chat, if you are following along live, uh, feel free to uh, chat and say hi, let us know you're here. Uh, Mama Hands, welcome, great to have you here. Um, and we will you know, take questions. So if you have any questions for Carter as we go through or anything about shared protocol or privacy, uh, this is uh, you know, a great place to, place to ask. Um, so let's jump into privacy. Why is privacy important? Why is privacy important? So fundamentally, Privacy is a protection in many ways. The example I like to give right now is if I'm a I'm a person and I go up to the and I go to the grocery store, right? Um, and I I swipe my card, I buy some groceries. The person at the cashier doesn't know how much money I have in my bank account. The cashier doesn't know every single transaction I've made since the beginning of time, right? And so. Whether we like it or not, even though there's many things wrong with traditional finance, one thing is there is that people actually take some of those. It, it, now, it's centralized privacy, right? Because there's certain counterparties within that system that do, they, they are aware of that data, right? But at the end of the day, when you go and make that transaction in person, there's a certain level of protection and privacy that you have financially. So like right now, if I try to buy something with Bitcoin and I went up to a merchant, um, if they were savvy enough and smart enough, they could do a correlation with an on-chain transaction. They could figure out how much money I have and my also my entire transaction history. That's like, that's a panopticon. That's, that's like not, that is not safe. That's not secure. That's not sustainable. Another example I like to give is imagine I was trying to run a business on a blockchain. And, you know, every time a customer bought a product, uh, like the competitor could snoop on the on-chain data and be like, ooh, like, I know which customer address, you know, purchased it. I could tell you how much they spent on it, when they bought it, which product they purchased. Like even from like a healthy commerce competition, we expect privacy around finances. And so the, the vision for privacy preserving DeFi in my mind is try to bring parity in Web3 to what's happening in Web2. And actually because everything in Web3 is immutable, in many ways, privacy is even more important here than in Web 2. So um, I, there's lots of different angles on like why privacy is valuable, and you'll hear many different answers. I like to be very focused on the the commerce angle and the utility angle of, of, of privacy, and even and even even regulators um, understand that privacy is important. They, they, so yeah. So it's interesting to me that you, you focused uh, strongly on the, the commerce value. I've had a lot of conversations with folks in the Monero community, and they have a slightly different focus, which is adversarial governments, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that kind of use case for privacy as compared to the, the use case that you have and whether those are uh, complementary or distinct. Yeah, so I, I, I fundamentally believe that privacy technology is all about returning sovereignty uh, back to everyday users. And, and what I mean by that is what I envision is we're going to have multiple different privacy tech stacks emerge and users will be able to decrypt their information, 
and hand it off to regulators and auditors. There'll be frameworks that get built on top of those privacy protocols. And ultimately, it will be up to the user if they want to have that more freedom-focused regulatory arbitrage stance on how they use their assets. Like That's their risk that they're taking on. And then you'll have other individuals that want to be compliant with a sovereign nation. Um, they, they're willing to do that. They're happy to do that but they still want that privacy when they're on chain, right? Like when an auditor comes along, they should be able to see all your transactions, but no one else in the world except the auditor should be able to see your, see your transactions, right? That That's kind of the, the, so in summary, I think it's a spectrum. I absolutely respect the the kind of purest freedom stance tied to privacy. It's 100% a protection against governments, um, but I'm just a believer that there has to be a full spectrum that emerges and we need to build the tooling to allow for for all of that sovereignty. That makes a lot of sense. And I love the way you frame it as uh, taking on different risks, depending on how much privacy you want. Not every country obviously has uh, strong privacy protections uh, at the moment. Um, let's jump into Secret a little bit. I, I don't know how many folks who are watching this video are actually aware of what Secret is. So if you could start there and then maybe we can build up to Shade Protocol. Sure. So Secret Network is a Cosmos SDK based uh, blockchain uh, built in the Cosmos. Essentially, how the privacy is achieved in the current iteration, because there's other iterations of secret coming that's going to harden the privacy tech stack. But currently, all the different nodes on the network uh, run a, spe a special type of hardware called trusted execution environments. The concept is that not even the validator can look inside of this secure enclave. And so the, the ledger is stored inside the enclave and um, within those enclaves, information and inputs are you know decrypted and the state of the blockchain is updated and because all of the different nodes around the world are also running the same computation in their secure enclave outputs are able to be verified across all of them so that you know there was no gaming of computation right because if one node is saying this but the other 49 are saying something else we know that like you know discard that and there's something wrong going over there so you have all these trusted execution environments within this distributed system. And that's ultimately how the, there's technically another layer of software and encryption on top of it to allow for new, no, new no, nodes to join the network. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the brief, brief rundown is it's hardware based encryption and in secret network 2.0, which was recently outlined uh, secret networks going to be headed towards kind of uh, trusted execution environments plus some form of fully homeomorphic encryption. Like there's 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 kind of other options on the table for the privacy tech stack, which is exciting uh, because obviously you need to continue to harden the privacy tech stack and a pure hardware level solution isn't sufficient, nor in my opinion is pure fully homeomorphic encryption. Like there's, there's a beautiful blog post that Guy Ziskind uh, put out there that talks about all the different privacy solutions. And as with everything in life, there's going to be trade-offs with every privacy solution. Some of them are going to be more performant than others. Some of them are going to be more secure than others. And Secret Network's goal is ultimately to have a, you know, scalable, a scalable solution that, you know, doesn't take 20 minutes for a single transaction. Can we find, can, can we be both performant and private? And that's kind of the, the goal is to have apps actually be able to succinctly and efficiently run on Secret Network. I'm sure other tech stacks will emerge that are more, we don't care if it takes 20 minutes to ensure that I had a secure transaction, right? Like that's the, 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 the spectrum will inevitably emerge. I, I, I'm kind of curious because one of the controversies I've heard has been around the secure enclave. And when I talk to some folks, they, they kind of roll their eyes and say like, yeah, that's not really private. Uh, use homomorphic encryption. What are the downsides of homomorphic encryption? 
Yeah, so largely with F, well, first first I'll address the this the TEE component and then I'll address the FHG. So essentially hardware level encryption is really interesting because you have these massive enterprise companies that like one of their flag, flagship products are these trusted execution environments. So you have huge enterprises that have very large security budgets that trust trusted execution environments. So if if TEEs are essentially broken, it is an extremely high priority for them to patch it and update it because there's so much economic value, even outside of crypto, tied to the strength of hardware level encryption. So I think that's like one piece when I when I hear about, oh, like TEEs aren't secure and kind of like shrugging off as a solution. I think it kind of like um, underrepresents how much economic value is currently secured by trusted execution environments outside of crypto and how how strong the incentives are uh, for all the entities working on that technology to continue to improve it and strengthen it. So that's like one thing I'll talk about. So maybe not perfect, but put a final point on it. Isn't the incentive to ensure that um, it's secure from everyone except perhaps large government actors? Um, you, you could you could argue that's the case. Yeah, you could argue that there's always the people that would say there's an incentive for back doors to be to be introduced to any sort of hardware. And I think I think that's a a valid uh, how, how should I say this? That is a, a healthy amount of pessimism to have. Um, I think the practicality of it states that we should have some sort of hybrid solution. I don't think we should only be reliant on hardware level encryption, but it is a very efficient solution. It's a very, hardware is a very scalable solution in that sense. And I personally look forward to the day when I can say that we're on a tech stack that has gone beyond just trusted execution environments. But, but for now it's, it's the tech there's, there's not many other networks out there with privacy preserving smart contracts. Secret network's been live since 2020. So it's, it, it was willing to trailblaze on the private smart contract side in the name of not maybe having the most perfect abstracted out solution. And yeah, I guess hopefully that kind of, kind of addresses my thoughts on TEEs. And then like downsides of fully homeomorphic encryption is largely tied to tied to speed. The, the verification process with how the proofing works is very, 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 very slow. Um, And that's, that's a barrier to adoption. If, If you want, you know, billions of transactions to be handled privately and each transaction takes 10 minutes fundamentally is like, is that the right solution? Is do we need that much privacy for every single type of transaction? Um, which is why once again, I kind of, I have a pluralist view to privacy that we'll see a, a host of different levels of security emerge. I don't think there's kind of like privacy tribalism out there where it's, it's very easy to take the convenient stance of like, oh, like the pure mathematical solutions, the only correct solution. And it's like, well, actually, commerce and the security needs are very, very broad. It's a very broad spectrum. And so I, I like to push back against kind of what I call privacy, privacy maximalism, especially when 90, you know, 99% of crypto right now is completely transparent. <laughs> there's a little bit of irony to the privacy projects trying to argue I have better privacy. And it's like, maybe so, maybe, maybe your security model is better, but what we should all be pushing for is more privacy than the current state. And also kind of a pluralist approach to the coverage, um, the the privacy coverage within, within web three. That's an awesome response. And I love the focus on, on practicality. I think there's a lot of maximalism that happens in the crypto community along a lot of different 
um, aspects. Um, are there are there other uh, sort of competitors to Secret Network uh, from a uh, private smart contract platform? Uh, I've heard of Dero. Are there are there other ones that you think are interesting for folks who are interested in privacy to dig into? Yeah, I, I think I think Dero is a really a really cool one to check out. I actually need to go recheck them out now that I think they're finally on mainnet with. I don't know if it's full FHE-based smart contract because there's fully homeomorphic encryption and there's homeomorphic encryption. Fully homeomorphic is like is like the holy grail. So I need to admittedly jump back in and play around with their network a little more and see see what's possible. I got to do a little check-in with them. Um, and then separate from them, I know Oasis is another pretty popular name. They still haven't gone on mainnet though with privacy-preserving smart contracts. And then I know Dusk Network is another one. Aztec recently closed a hundred million dollar round on Ethereum for <laughs> privacy. So I was like, wow, okay. Clearly there's some institutional interest in some form of privacy. Very interesting. Uh, so yeah, those are, those are the couple of names I would, I would name drop. Awesome. I, I know a lot of folks uh, who are in my community are in the uh, Cardano ecosystem. Do you have any thoughts on Cardano's midnight? I know right now it's more research papers and announcements than actual product. I mean, what I, one thing I, I love about Cardano uh, which is maybe depending on which community you're in, that sentence is already controversial. But one of the, one of the <laughs> things I love about Cardano is, you know, they, I feel like they, they envision, they envision, they envision the late game and they do the academic groundwork to try to like figure out what, if like that, if these late games are, are possible on like the decentralization level, the privacy level. And so I think privacy was on more the, the tail end of their list of things to tackle, but, it doesn't hurt. Like we all, we all benefit from, from more privacy research. Every, every dollar that comes in, that's for R and D to improve privacy in web three. I say hats off to that. That's, that's only a good thing for privacy to get more attention. And it's very, very convenient for crypto as an industry to not talk about privacy because like, why would you, when 99% of crypto is totally transparent on all these ledgers, why would the Ethereum's of the world be like, ooh, privacy is a huge deal yeah. and we don't have any of it, right? So the incentives are kind of skewed right now for the industry to not care about privacy as like a key critical issue. But I think that privacy, ironically, is the key to unlocking the full value of a, of a decentralized future, that privacy and sovereignty and decentralization all have kind of an intimate relationship with each other. And I think privacy will be the piece of the puzzle that actually allows us to integrate back into our everyday lives. Like why why isn't privacy integrated into your everyday life yet? Part of the answer is, is privacy. I, I just love the thought exercise that, that privacy is the key to unlocking our decentralized future. And we've kind of built the first set of frameworks, but we're, you know, we need privacy to take it to the next level. Now, mm -hmm. when I talk with Bitcoin folks, they, they're often like, here's 12 steps and you can use Bitcoin private privately. It's great. Um, do you have any thoughts on the privacy of Bitcoin or Lightning Network as, as sometimes people use as a way to, to be private? Um, so it's interesting because like the Bitcoin, there is like a Bitcoin tech stack kind of emerging. But what I found funny with some of those, like the lightning networks or those privacy solutions, is they're effectively like the equivalent of like a layer two, right? Because they're like, they're, they're kind of their own little separate side channels. And so you end up, it's kind of like, I've talked with those Bitcoin maximalists and I've talked with like very strong Bitcoin maximalists with some large followings. And I found that there's a bit of a dissonance there because like, all right, like if you're okay with ex if exiting the base Bitcoin tech stack 
and kind of have like a separate side solution, then you probably should be okay with some other privacy solution out there too. Like you're already kind of exiting the bounds of Bitcoin as a ledger to, to a degree, kind of. Um, so I like those Bitcoin solutions emerging, but for those maximalists, I'd say you've already accepted the fact that you're kind of a layer two, you're already interacting with layer two-esque technology. So you should also probably be okay with other privacy solutions like Secret Network, um, like the Darrow's, like the Await, like all these other solutions that are emerging. It's it's just an extra step away, no different than the extra step that they're currently using. Awesome. I just want to pause quickly and say hi to folks who popped in chat. Uh, Keek Domics, welcome. Uh, looks like you're from the Kajira world. Welcome. And yes. let's go gaming. Good to see you again. Shalom. Um, okay, we, we've laid the groundwork for privacy. We've got a good sense of why it's important for commerce. Uh, let's dive into Shade Protocol. What is Shade Protocol? What is Shade Protocol? So Shade Protocol is an array of connected privacy-preserving DeFi applications built on Secret Network. The goal here is can we create every single key DeFi primitive, add privacy on the smart contract level, and then have all of those apps cohesively integrated under one single governance token? So a lot of ecosystems, it gets really confusing because you show up and you have your five lending products, your five DEXs, you have, you know, you go to a new standalone website um, and then that website has its own token. And so the liquidity is fractured, the, the user experience is fractured. And so we want to really try to unify all the apps in one website, one token, one cohesive solution with privacy integrated into all of it. So we have our flagship product, Silk coming in Q1. It's a privacy-preserving stablecoin that I can talk about for a very long time. We have um, Shade Lend also uh, launching in Q1, which is a private lending product. So right now in crypto, when you lock up collateral on a transparent blockchain, everyone knows your liquidation price point. So people can try to shift price around to cause cascading liquidations. But with the privacy-preserving version of lending, whether you're an institution or an individual, that liquidation price point is private. So Privacy is fair. Privacy is equitable. There's no asymmetry of information. There's no asymmetry of how well, you know, threat actors um, can kind of man manipulate that transparent information to take an action that ultimately is bad for the user. So privacy preserving lending, we have the, um, the stable coin coming out and we're actually launching shade swap February 7th, which is a derivative swap, a stable swap and a regular AMM all in one with those privacy preserving tokens. So that's another beautiful, private DeFi applications. We also launched Stake Secret, which is a privacy-preserving staking derivative. And we also already launched a Bonds product, um, which is, that's kind of a power user product. I could talk about that separately. And then we've also already launched an IBC interface. Uh, so anyone in the Cosmos can bridge from any chain to any chain and move their assets around. And it's just a, an interface to make that process easier. So that was, that was a full, I'll, I'll yeah, it sounds like you've got a, a lot going on. I'm, I'm getting a couple of questions from chat, specifically on Silk. Um, so let's actually start with the stablecoin, stable which might be one of the more complicated aspects of the, the project. Um, how does Silk work? What, what is it? And I think often when people hear stablecoin, it's either one of two models come to mind. Either it's a USDC and they've got fiat somewhere back one to one, or it's like Luna and it's going to explode with, with UST. Um, so where, where is Silk? How does Silk solve the problem? Yeah, so Silk follows the over-collateralized over model um, where you're using a bunch of different types of cryptocurrencies in an over-collateralized fashion to back out each Silk that's minted. 
Um, right, like one thing to always think of is that a stable coin is actually a liability, right? If you hold, you know, one USK or one IST or one USTC, ultimately, what the, the promise is that you can sell it somewhere for one dollar worth of value, or that you could go, you know, send it back to a smart contract and ultimately, you know, get like one dollar back, right? Like that, that is the promise, but that promise is a liability. And so in finance, assets match liabilities, right? And so kind of the crypto solution to this is to have smart contracts where users send send more value and lock it up in escrow on a smart contract such that they can then mint out a stable coin, go do, and then they're essentially like in a leverage position. It's, it's a lending product in essence, and they can do fun stuff in DeFi and crypto. Um, but if they tried to walk away with the liability, their collateral is still you know, locked up there. And there's a system of, you know, liquidations to ensure that um, those liabilities are accounted for via the smart contract. So long and short, Silk uses the tried and true over collateralized lending model that MakerDAO uses um, and that most and most of the even other stable coins in Cosmos that are emerging will also be using this type of over collateralized lending model as time goes on. Um, But what really differentiates Silk and makes it unique is not its stability mechanisms. What actually makes it really unique is what it's pegged to. So to date, the majority of stable coins are pegging to the US dollar, right? So whenever whenever on the open market, if if the stable coin is above $1, people come in and arb that, right? They'll lock up collateral, they'll mint out stuff for $1 and sell it for $1.02. And so that sell pressure as supply expands is what pushes the open market price back down to the target peg. And then whenever the stable coin is under undervalued, um, people who have taken out loans are incentivized to buy the stable coin off the open market so they can pay their loan back at a discount. Those are the two arbitrage driving forces that bring things back to peg. But to date, the target peg has been one US dollar. That's been that's been the target. But when we set out to build silk there was like kind of a a cognitive dissonance. How can we claim to have truly decentralized money if we're pegged to centralized monetary systems? And so Silk does not track the US dollar. Silk actually tracks a basket of global currencies and commodities, which means you're essentially, um, you know, Silk could be worth a dollar four cents, a dollar five cents, a dollar six cents. As, As the dollar depreciates in value in relation to the rest of the basket, the value of silk can actually slowly increase if you're using a, a US dollar mindset. Uh, in, a, in a similar sense, if you're if you're like a euro holder, um, you might see the basket decrease. So it's, it's a really revolutionary product where you're no longer exposed to just one global economy, one country. Instead, it's, it's kind of like an ETF of currencies and commodities in terms of what you're tracking. And Shade governance over time has the ability to add assets to the basket, has ability to remove assets from the basket, has ability to modify the weights of the stable coins such that if the US dollar hyperinflated and went to zero, Silk has a path to modify its composition over time. I call it a reflexive stable coin. It has this, this flexibility to evolve in relation to global volatility. And it's, it's such a gutsy and bold vision to, to create something that it, it taps into the stability of all these economies and currencies, but it does so in a way where we have the flexibility to evolve over time. 
Could a, could a thought be also that uh, while it taps into the stability of multiple currencies, it also taps into the instability of multiple currencies. Mm. Um, do, you, do you see this as maybe making it more difficult for it to hold, hold value, maybe not hold peg, a separate mechanism, but to hold value? Well, it, it becomes, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, it very much depends on what currency you're thinking in, right? Because the weird part about silk is that, like, let's say I'm only thinking in terms of US dollars. Um, the value of my silk, like, could essentially appreciate or depreciate. And, and so, like, if, if I'm losing value in, in the dollar mindset, the person who thinks in terms of euros might be gaining in value. So it's, it's a really, it's a really weird, um, your reference currency makes a really big difference. And we're so, so like dollar centric in the world that it's kind of, it's kind of a shift in a shift in, in viewpoint. That's yeah, there's, there's definitely friction there, but. I mean, I guess it it would rely on an external, you know, like a commodity or something like the price of oil, assume that remains constant to the price of a dollar and the Euro drops by 50%. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, then, the value of silk would, would go down both in dollar terms, but as, as well as in kind of real world asset terms for that particular commodity. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's definitely like um, the, the, the analogy I like to give is you could invest in a single stock, right? Something like Tesla and you're all of the upside of Tesla. You get, you get all of it when you're holding it, but you also get all of the downside. Um, versus if you hold something like the S&P 500, which is like an index investment where you put a little bit into the top 500 companies, you only get the, you know, you don't get as much of Tesla's upside. If, if you see a massive price price moving upwards, like you don't get that upside. And if it goes down, you don't, you don't feel as much of the downside. So in a similar sense, because we're split between gold, Bitcoin, US dollar, Euro, yen, and a, and a couple other pieces in there, like if the US dollar depreciates in value like the power of its economy starts to decrease the the value of the dollar in relation to the other currencies start to decrease you're not going to feel that as much um compared to if you just held the dollar right if i only held the dollar i get all the upside of the dollar and all the downside of the dollar and so we're essentially creating a perpetual hedge against any single currency it's it's an aggregate it's it's trying to map onto the collective value of the world and how value shifts between all these global economies. That's, that's very interesting. Is there, is there a concept in traditional finance that is similar to this, that, that kind of maps all the global currencies? It's there's, there's, there's been like, a, there's been, so we, we actually invis, uh, investigated and the I, IMF, the Inter, international monetary uh, fund, they've, they've messed around with, like a similar it's a similar concept but it's the concept is only available to banks right and it's mm-hmm. banks lending between each other and so like there's some weird index aggregate currencies between banks but to my knowledge no one's attempted this in such an open source and permissionless way and it also has privacy how are uh, what, sorry? Uh, which kind of currencies are you picking for at launch? Uh, the silk two. Yeah. So right now it is gold, Bitcoin, USD, Euro, uh, JPY, and then I believe I believe it's the Canadian dollar, and I think the yen also might be in there too. I have to recheck the the final iteration. There's a set of researchers that have been working on it, so there's been a couple of like proposed uh, at launch iterations. It used to have twenty plus currencies and actually got simplified uh, down to six or seven ish. And just for, it was easier to model 
like back test yeah. 30 years and project with a simpler model. But the goal would be eventually Silk actually becomes a more and more nuanced model. And there could actually be research competitions on like an annual basis to improve that peg composition over time. Uh, fascinating that you have sound money, but no ultrasound money. Oh, sorry, you broke up. Uh, I, I lagged out a little bit there. Can you say it again? Oh, yeah, no worries. I say it's fascinating that you've got sound money as part of the basket of collateral, but not ultrasound money. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have Bit Bitcoin and gold as commodities are kind of the inflationary, the hedges against like global inflation, right? Um, so there, there is some hedges that exist within it. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting little aggregate. I'm, I'm curious if there's any um, principles or philosophy around centralization and, and what actually kinds of collateral would back uh, when you're minting the, the stablecoin. I know, you know, in certain networks like DAI, they've got more than half of their collateral is USDC. So it's very hard to say it's decentralized, right? It's both Circle, Coinbase, and the US government have their finger on the button to, to stop it. Yeah, this is this is this is like an insanely this one's kept me up at night, this specific question. Um, there's there's so many there's so many different routes. You'll you'll have community members that are like, you know, we should never touch a centralized issue stablecoin ever. Right. And that's that's like a fair view. There's a whole set of risks tied to it. There's a whole set of, you know, what if Circle decides to freeze? like all stable coins tied to MakerDAO, then like, boom, just like that, all of your protocol, all that hard work is just gone because you trusted a centralized counterparty. Um, there'll be people that counter that viewpoint by saying like, you will never reach a certain level of, of growth and velocity if like you don't use reliable centralized collateral to kickstart the adoption, right? Which is, it's kind of a dangerous perspective to be like, if you don't lean into this tool as a source of growth, then you'll fail. That feels like that intuitively feels wrong. It seems to represent like a lack of patience. Um, there's also like also the MakerDAO forums. If you ever want to have fun, just go hang out there and read some of those forums on these discussions. Because I'm I'm just kind of verbatim spitting out some of, some of the arguments I've heard there. Um, there's other arguments that say something to the effect of like. Um, the likely, like, how, how do you even, like, how much of a, a weight do you attach to the likelihood of that type of legal tail risk, right? Because some people will, will assume, like, well, you have to treat it like it's a 100% certainty. But then there's other people that are like, that's actually, like, probability-wise, that's, like, not actually how that would work, right? So how much of your protocol do you hedge against, like, an unlikely event? And so there's it's just the debates are super nuanced. I'm actually curious your thoughts on this one, Vanessa. What, what, what do you think is the, the best path collateral? I'll say I'm a bit of a, a purist here. Uh, I, I believe that a decentralized economy needs decentralized money. And as we bring in centralization risk, uh, you could make an argument that bridge risk is higher than centralization risk mm. at a certain size. Um, but I think once you get beyond a certain size and, and impact, uh, the, the risk... Uh, shifts and you're more at risk from a nation state actor coming after you than not. Um, and so, you know, even in Kujera, we've had discussions and actually, you know, passed the uh, the voting to be able to use uh, Pax Gold as collateral. I'm against that. I'm still against it, even though it's it's there and it, it's yep. part of it, uh, because I see it as a slippery slope. You know, today, maybe you have 10% of your collateral in a centralized 
um, uh, entity. And then very soon, it's easier to just bump that up to 15% and then maybe 18% and then 21% just to, just to get over the hump until we grow. And then yep. you wake up one day and you make a die and you're actually having your, your collateral custodied in Coinbase in USDC. No, I, I, I like, I, I love the pure stance. I, I personally like the, the cyberpunk in me, especially with what Silk is, uh, that feels like the right path. It's like, if we're already going to be this non-centralized, centrally pegged stable coin, then like, why go halfway? Why, why, why not be fully decentralized collateral with a decentralized peg? Um, and, but then, then there's like this, that, that little other part of you that whispers in like, but also like, there's this, this adoption race that occurs. And so like, there's like a, there's like, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what, what's best. And there's, there's also problems too, with like crypto collateral. Like one, one of the downsides is, um, crypto collateral is super volatile, right? Like, so if you're, um, how do I say this? How lucrative the loan is when you're minting out USK, for instance, is, is based off of like, what's the borrowing fee? What's the interest fee, right? And what's my, what's the LTV parameters on, on those loans? And for volatile crypto, you're going to have a higher interest fee, higher borrowing fee, and that LTV is not going to be nearly as attractive, right? And that's because the system has to protect itself. It's dealing with a volatile asset that has only a certain amount of liquidity on the market to be able to tap into in the event of liquidation. So that's one thing people don't know about. Like, like it's, it's all about the available liquidity for the asset locked up that's backing yeah. the stable coin. Um, and so that's one of the growth limitations. There's not many cryptos out there in Cosmos that have good liquidity available such that you can have aggressive parameters on, you know, growing the stable coin. So in summary, it's a battle between growth and patience. And I think patience <laughs> is the right way to go. I understand, I 100% understand people's desire to have better loans, more lucrative loans by tapping into that centralized collateral. I, I get the desire there though. Yeah, and is that is that related to capital efficiency? And so conceivably, you could be at you know ninety five percent LTV with a USDC, and it wouldn't be that bad because yes. it's likely not going to dip below. Exactly, it's a hundred. I mean, it's LTV is literally the definition. Like capital efficiency and LTV are like they're one hundred percent. Yep, yep, one hundred percent. Um, so there's a couple uh, stable coins I'd love to get your thoughts on. The first of which for my Cardano folks is Jed, uh, which as yeah. I understand it is an over-collateralized stable coin with between 400% and 800% collateral. Um, I don't know if you've done any more research on it or have an understanding, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. So you can have a crazy high collateralization, but it doesn't mean anything if there's no liquidity on the open market for that liquidated collateral to pull the stable coin out of the market and burn it, right? So whenever I see those super high collateralization ratios, the very first question is, but how deep is the liquidity on the open market for mm -hmm. DeJet? Because it's very nice in theory to be like, or oh, 800% collateralized. But um, if you have 10 million locked up in the lending product, hypothetically, with 800% collateralization, but there's only a million dollars in liquidity on the open market, in the event of the liquidation, there will not be like the liquidity will be drained faster than what the collateral can pull off the market to, to economically account for the liabilities versus assets. So Dejed conceptually more capital, more, more over collateralization. Great. But how deep is your liquidity? That would be my, my, my challenge question for, for that particular project. Um, and the other, the other stable coin, which we've uh, kind of been dancing around here uh, is UST. And I'm curious your thoughts on UST, why it failed, could it have succeeded 
Um, is there any merit in even exploring that kind of model in the future? So I, I was very embedded into the UST community. The original Silk white paper actually talked about the risks of UST. Um, and we actually, at the time, we were following many of the similar mechanisms of UST. So when it collapsed, there was very much a, I remember I went to, I went out to a restaurant alone. Um, I just sat there like <laughs> completely stunned eating some pizza and being like, we were on the path to inherit many of the assumptions of the UST model. Um, and so the next, the next day sat down, wrote a blog about the assumptions that we were on track to inherit. And so the assumptions, cause like models are useful because they have certain assumptions. And if the assumptions hold true, then you get, you get a certain outcome, right? So the assumptions that really killed Terra, in my opinion, comes down to three things. Um, the first one was they only had one source of collateral, right? It was literally just Luna technically as an asset backing for UST. So that's problem number one. If you don't have a distributed set of assets that are backing the stable coin, you're taking on a lot of risk from just that one type of collateral. The second problem was like the seniorage mechanism is not financially sound. And the, the user story I always like to give is imagine um, a one Luna equals $100, okay? What an attacker can do, and this is, this is conceptually and more and more information is coming out with FTX and some of these other folks that this is probably what went down. You could burn one Luna that's worth $100 and mint out 100 UST, right? Each one of those UST are worth $1. Now, what happens when Luna drops from $100 back to $50? All of that UST minted out at that certain Luna valuation has now created bad debt in the system, right? There's a, there's a massive gap there where you mint at the peak of Luna's price. You go to UST, Luna price drops. Now your asset to liability matching is completely messed up. Um, so the fact that Luna didn't really have a liquidation mechanism involved anywhere. There was no, there wasn't like a locked collateral system that was slowly pulling UST off the market as Luna's price dropped. It was, it's a very, it was a very, very risky system and it wasn't, it wasn't financially, financially sound. So I think conceptually these seniorage style stable coins, um, I think there's too much, I think there's too much risk. I think, if you reach a certain level of adoption, there will be threat actors that crunch the numbers and eventually it'll be worth it to attack your system. Especially when like a hedge fund has, you know, are, are shorting, they're shorting the outcome that they're going to create. They're, they'll be willing to spend $5 billion if it earns them $10 billion, right? So in summary, I don't think seniorage stable coins are ever going to be a thing within this programmatic environment. Um, if they are, we will not be the one kicking off that experiment. And I think there's just, there's, I kind of, it's kind of like financial physics. There has to be assets backing liabilities and the seniorage mechanism allowed for really fast growth. And the reason the growth was so fast is because it broke that financial rule as you, you need all those assets backing those liabilities. So um, I'm not super optimistic, but we will observe other experiments. Maybe more research will come out proving that you could have some sort of hybrid model. But I, I, I think at this point, 
what more of an experiment do we need? A, do we really need another $50 billion experiment to go wrong to prove to ourselves that we can't break the laws of financial physics? I, I very much have a feeling of schadenfreude uh, to uh, know that many of the folks who potentially attacked UST also went bankrupt. <laughs> but yes, your, yeah. your points are well taken on the stability of the system. Um, kind of very timely is I'm, I'm seeing a lot about Note and Canto um, running around um, is that following in UST's footsteps? Um, it, it seems like it may have similarities. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it. If there isn't a lockup me mechanism where as the asset loses value, there's liquidations being sucked off the market. If that mechanism does not exist, then yes, it's following UST's footsteps. Uh, and that's guaranteed to be a bad thing once once it reaches a large enough size that an economic actor has the incentive to to break it. Let's talk a bit about liquidations and how that works for, for Shade Protocol and for Silk. Um, I mean, I'm familiar with Orca. You know, some, some, some folks may not be as familiar. It's basically a way to bid on liquidations. End users can bid on it. Um, how does it work in the, in the ecosystem that you're building? Sure. So the way it works with Shade Protocol is there's something called uh, the stability pool. Essentially, what it is is people can deposit Silk into the stability pool. And as lending positions get liquidated the the stability pool essentially turns in turns silk in back into the protocol and gets discounted liquidated collateral in return and it gets evenly distributed to all of the participants within um, the silk stability pool and the incentive for participating in the stability pool is the gap between the value of your silk versus the value of the discounted assets that you're receiving um, is, is very lucrative because then you have people arbing between the stability pool and what they're earning there back to the open market. And that's essentially the, the, the profits incurred by being a, a good actor and participant in the liquidation system. Awesome. Awesome. So I think we've talked a lot about Silk and a lot about stable coins. This has been just a fascinating discussion. Let's move on to some of the other aspects of Shade Protocol. Um, tell me a bit about lending. Um, what makes lending on Shade unique or are there any models that inspired it from other ecosystems? Yeah. So the most, I think the coolest feature about Shade Lend is of course, like you're minting out Silk. Uh, eventually, this, I guess, Alpha League, but like money, money markets on the roadmap where it won't just be Silk, but also like a generalized lending and borrowing platform where you could, you know, lend out. I mean, it could be USK, right? You could lend and borrow USK on the lending market, right? Like that, that would be that would be an option on there. But in its current iteration, I think what's really special about Shade Lend is you're going to be one click away from the entire Shade Swap decentralized exchange. So imagine, you know, you lock up your Atom. You mint out Silk. You're one click away from having 22 trading pairs with with Silk, right? So you have all that utility that's opened up just by being a half click away from Shade Swap. And beyond just like the immediate utility of having all those pairings on the decks, you also have that privacy, right? When you open that lending position, people don't know what your liquidation price point is. A whale can't come along and you know query the smart contract and be like, "Oh, Vanessa, if, if I move Bitcoin." Or if I move Adam down to $9, I can liquidate her intentionally and front run that effect, right? Like that's not, it's, 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 it's private. So I think that privacy is a super strong feature that we're going to be advertising um, to institutions, to retail folks. It's, it's fair and equitable. There's no asymmetry of information that you have to worry about. And then second is that utility of you mint out silk as a loan and you're half a step away from this entire beautiful uh, shade swap experience.
Yeah, it's just kind of dawning on me, you know, you talk about people hunting your positions to try and liquidate you, uh, you know, in the existing system of centralized exchanges, it's not that no one can do that. It's that the owners of the centralized exchanges can do it. You've got, you know, Sam and maybe CZ, who knows, uh, yep. hunting your positions. Um, and so this seems definitely a step up from even anything that centralized systems can produce. Yes. And I think there's demand for it. Like, it's, it's really interesting, like, even during Luna's collapse, and as we've seen a lot of these centralized um, exchanges collapse, people have been celebrating because they're like, on Ave, we can see that such and such org had to pay off their loan and, like, told you guys, like, smart contracts, like, they're not a very kind, smart contracts are the most unkind counterparty, right? It's like, you pay me back <laughs> or you don't get your collateral. But during all that, I'm like, that's crazy because, like, we're all watching and we know where these liquidation price points are for these institutions, which by that same effect means that like normal everyday people don't have that protection. Like the very effect that everyone's celebrating speaks to the fact that like we need privacy for that data or else um, people, people will hurt retail folks in their lending positions. They're going to hurt other whales in their, in their lending position. So I just think that asymmetry of information will always have economic actors extract value from it. And what I mean by that is like, us normal users, we're not coders, right? We, we don't have scripts to be able to like prepare for some like very programmatic actor to who's going to try to manipulate the available public information to try to extract profit from you, the user, right? We're not skilled enough to do that. So the only way to make to like level the playing field is just privacy, not some game around, ooh, like we can democratize minor extractable value. It's like, no, like MEV shouldn't exist in the first place because privacy should be baked in at layer zero. Ah, let, let's touch on this a bit because uh, in Cosmos, as you may know, like Adam 2 and bringing MEV into the protocol level was a big point of discussion. Um, can you kind of talk both sides of the debate and why, you know, perhaps you're landing on it? It's, it's a bad idea, but why could it be a good idea as well? I mean, most of the, it's interesting, um, the Unchained podcast with Laura Shin just had like an hour and a half long video between some of like, I'll call them like the godfathers of MEV, right? And so like hearing their stories, how, how they went from like outraged at MEV to then being like, it's inevitable to being like, well, let's democratize it, right? It's just like, it's like a very like slippery slope <laughs> to go from like, and you see that all the time where ideology turns into, and like I've displayed some of this on this very, on this very call where idealism eventually shifts to realism, which shifts to ultimately like compromise of, of, of your values to a degree. So in my opinion, in Cosmos, most of the people that are excited about MEV and all these protocols are going to be spun up and capturing it have already surrendered the fact that it's inevitable. And I think that's like the wrong stance. I think privacy at layer zero gives us fairness. Um, but because people haven't built that into their tech stack, what are they going to do? Are they going to admit like, yeah, we messed up like this baseline principle. We really screwed up that MEV's even possible that people can extract value from users when they're using apps. Right. It'd be, it takes a lot of humility for, for, for people to do that. So I think it's, in my opinion, what I'm seeing happening in Cosmos is like MEV's inevitable. So how we justify that is we're going to give MEV back to the protocol stakeholders. We're going to try to like capture the value for ourselves and give it back to the protocol owners, which is like good in theory, except it still breaks the fundamental rule of like you're still extracting from users. Like the fact that you're extracting from users and giving it back to like stakers, right? Or some some protocol token. It's like you still extracted value. 
And so you can try to justify the fact that you've captured it and given it to the better stakeholders. But in my opinion, MEV, if you're going to do MEV right, give the extracted value back to the user that took the action. Uh, but that it's uh, people just people don't think that way. I don't know. Could you make an argument that you know any protocol which charges fees and then returns those fees to stakers is doing exactly the same thing? And conceivably, you could charge less fees um, by returning that value to the user. See, stakers stakers serve a very specific security purpose, though, right? Like the purpose of a staker is. I am locking up collateral, which makes it more expensive for someone to buy 51% supply so that they can hijack governance and consensus, right? So stakers have a very clear purpose. And so for them to receive value makes sense. They're providing economic security. They get paid to provide that economic security. Um, but MEV is like, MEV isn't tied to security. MEV is tied to like usage of the protocol. Like users come in, they're using the protocol, Um and we're extracting from their actions because we can or we can order the blocks. We can move their transaction around within the block and like try to front run and extract value from their action. They don't even know what's happening because they're not programmatic. They're just clicking, you know, buy Adam on the little website. They don't even know what's going on behind the scenes. So I don't know. End rant from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good. I think it's good for folks who are, you know, perhaps new to the topic to see both sides. Because at least in conversations, I've really only seen kind of one side of like, oh, it's inevitable and let's do the right thing because it's there, um, at least recently. Uh, I did want to just give you a shout out. Mama says, thank you for what you're building, Carter. Um, Appreciate I, it, I do think it's important, you know, the, the, the privacy and kind of building that kind of ecosystem where we can be a little more free. Privacy leads to that freedom. Uh, let's talk about uh, staking derivatives, which you mentioned. So are, are they going to be native to, to Shade or are you working with someone like Stride or someone else to build out those staking derivatives? How's that going to work? Yeah, so we, way back in 2022, we launched uh, the largest staker network staking derivative. This is actually way back before Stride and Quicksilver and all these other ones. So Shade's, same with Bonds, by the way. First ever Bonds product in the Cosmos, but no one, no one taught me. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. We're happy to build quietly. Um, but so yeah, staking. You could almost are... say you're building in secret. <laughs> <laughs> you need to clip that. You need to clip that right there. That was beautiful. Um, so staking derivatives are a really interesting tool, and it all comes down to opportunity cost, right? So like, if I'm on, um, let's say Adam, and I have the Adam token, I have to make the choice. Do I lock up my token and earn, let's, I'm just going to toss out a number, 5% APR on locking up my Atom? Or do I, instead of staking, go in liquidity provide and earn like 15% yield over here, right? And the beauty of a staking derivatives, they essentially, um, as you lock up your collateral, they give you essentially like a receipt that says, hey, like this receipt represents a claim on that token that's earning yield over there, right? So I can always turn this receipt in, get my collateral back plus the yield. But now that I have this receipt and everyone agrees that this receipt represents that collateral that's accruing value and securing that chain, I can now go like buy and sell this receipt. That's what a staking derivative is. So we're, the beauty of staking derivatives is they DeFi users don't have to choose between like, I can only stake or I can only liquidity provide. Instead, it's like, no, I can stake and I can liquidity provide with this receipt, the staking derivative that represents a claim on that collateral. So ShadeSwap as a, as a decentralized exchange is going to be putting derivatives at the forefront. Like all the primary pairings are going to be with, with derivatives and it's way cheaper for the protocol because uh, imagine I had a Atom to Osmo 
pair. What the protocol has to pay liquidity providers is like their opportunity cost, right? It's like you're giving up Adam's staking yield, you're giving up Osmo's staking yield, and you're taking on the risk of impermanence loss, right? But if you have ST Adam to ST Osmo, now the liquidity provider isn't giving up their staking yield when they're liquidity providing, and all you have to pay them for is that risk of impermanence loss. And so staking derivatives as primary pairings, they drive down the cost of emissions uh, to attract a corresponding amount of capital. So it's just way, way cheaper. I think derivatives, I think 2023 is like going to be the derivatives renaissance uh, in the cosmos. So we're working with Strides going to be bringing their derivatives. We, of course, have our derivative and we're going to have other partners also joining into the fray that we're going to bring derivatives to Shadeswap. We also invented a new curve too. So I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with like concentrated liquidity, but we have the world's first uh, asymmetric concentrated liquidity. And essentially it allows us to take liquidity from one part of the curve that never gets used and shove it into a very specific region. Uh, most concentrated liquidity today is called symmetrical concentrated liquidity. And so derivatives have a very predictable order flow. It's a very long rabbit hole, but that derivative makes trading insanely efficient. As an example, if a pool had 1 million in TVL, someone could trade $100,000 worth of ST Atom to Atom and only incur 0.13% slippage, which is like insanely efficient. That's insane. I, I think we could we could do a whole show just on concentrated liquidity. Yes. Uh, my yeah. exposure to it was they released it on QuickSwap uh, on Polygon. I looked at it. I said, nope, that's too hard. <laughs> and that's good because users probably who like it really is for your your liquidity provide like the liquidity providers are the ones that have to figure out what all that stuff as a user you just get the benefit because you just have better trades right so you trade more yeah so i mean let's talk a little bit about the the, the decks as well so you know how can people get involved from a liquidity provider perspective on, on the decks for sure so on february 7th we are launching shade swap v1 the second kind of version comes out when silk and lend launches which those dates are not public yet, but I'll just say that they'll be quite quite soon after Swap goes out. Um, so as a liquidity provider, you'll be able to go to app.shayprotocol.io. We have this nice little bridge interface where you can you know, select your network, select Seeker Network, bridge over an asset. It's a very seamless experience. experience. We've done a lot of testing on it. Then you'll click on the Swap page. You go to the Provide page, and you have a bunch of different options available for you. But specifically, once again, the unique part is that the majority of those pairs We'll be featuring Silk as the primary pairing, as well as derivatives as kind of the counter pairing. So you won't see like a regular Atom liquidity providing opportunity. It's all going to be like derivative based and Silk based. Why haven't we seen um, other DEXs approach the derivatives quite the same way? Like even back in, on, on Terra in the day, in the heyday, most of the pairings weren't with an Amp Luna or a Luna X. They were with Luna itself. Um, I think it takes like at least, I think that's a great point. Um, generally speaking, the derivatives come later into the game than the initial version of the decks. So I think like the liquidity provider experience is simpler without derivatives and derivatives also come later in the game. So th those two pieces of the puzzle make the quote unquote simpler pools a lot more popular, even though they're a lot less capital efficient and a lot less useful in many ways. So I think in the cosmos, like strides only been live for, I don't know, it's been like two, two months at this point, maybe maybe a little over two. Quicksilver is not even fully online yet. Persistence isn't fully online yet. Like we're, it's it's such a young product line, the staking derivative side that I think 
these DEXs have been around like osmosis. They've been around way longer than derivatives have. So it's, it's, it's in shade, shade protocol is lucky because as our DeFi suite goes online, we're getting to kind of pull in the most recent tools to, to make the user experience better and the liquidity provider experience better. So just timing, good timing. And just for folks who, who maybe haven't been as exposed to derivatives, what are some of the risks involved in using derivatives versus just the, you know, the, the regular atom, for example? So the biggest risks of the derivatives are the smart contract risk, uh, or in Stride's case, I guess the, the, the blockchain risk of what happens if you go back and you, you know, deposit your receipt and you have to wait that unbonding period, that unstaking period. And at the end of that unstaking period, you should be able to withdraw the original token. So if I locked up Adam and I get my ST Adam, I should be able to, you know, turn the ST Adam back in and get my Adam back um, in the event of an exploit. You're not going to be able to do that, right? Like that, like that's, that is the risk. If someone hacks the smart contract and is able to walk away with all that locked up L1 um, collateral, the, I guess the second, I don't know if this is like a, is like a risk, but if you, if you mint out a staking derivative and there's no liquidity pools anywhere for that staking derivative, and there isn't really any opportunities with it anywhere, it's, it's, it's pretty like not, it's pretty not meaningful. Uh, just because it doesn't have any utility. So it's still earning you yield. So now it's smart contract risk and it's not very useful. It's, it's like some form of a risk. Um, and then the final piece, which I know some people have talked about this one is like the slashing risk because a lot of the staking derivatives, they won't just stake it to one node. They'll stake it to like a bunch of different nodes in order to like help maintain the decentralization of the security that it represents. Um, but then technically you're as the user, you're not in control of like where your stake is staked to. So now you're taking on some of that validator risk. So that, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting tail risk one. So yeah, those, those are a couple of them. Awesome, awesome, very clear. Uh, we just got a question coming from, come from uh, GM. Um, is there gonna be an incentivized shade testnet? Is it, is it going on right now? Has it finished? What's there up with it? That? Yeah, so there's $6,000 approximately worth of shade rewards right now um, on testnet. And you can check out the Shade Protocol YouTube. I, I actually made the video for like connecting to Testnet, seeding your wallet. And then we're giving away the rewards to like top 10 in a bunch of different categories. Uh, but it's basically like if you can find bugs in the website or if you can find some functionality that's missing, if you can find inconsistency in the design or the CSS, like well, you're going to be able to enter into a, a competition and earn rewards. So that's going on live right now, and ShadeSwap is going to be on Testnet on Monday. Right now, it's just the rest of the app on Testnet. So if you want to get involved, the Discord super, we had over 100 submissions in the first six hours. We were just like, wow, that's a lot of participation. It was super cool. Man, that, that's awesome. So, you know, along with incentivized Testnets, um, do you have any airdrops that are planned, or have, have those already been given out? Yeah, so, man, we are, we are, we're, we're ancient on the airdrop side. So we actually had snapshots back in... 2021 november it was november Whoa. 7th november 7th to december 13th of 2021 i remember like it was yesterday but it was snapshots on secret network adam and get this the original luna pre-crash so if you were if you were a staker on og luna you still have a shade airdrop waiting for you and we actually it's kind of funny because the airdrop unlock has been every time a new app launches another like 10 percent gets released so we're getting closer to having the airdrop fully distributed at this point but it's always kind of funny to go back to the Luna community and be like, I know this is weird, but like 
you might have an airdrop waiting for you still, <laughs> even though everything's gone terrible. Like you should come check us out. So, so where would someone go to, to find the airdrop? And I'm, I'm actually very interested because I've been in all of these communities and I was, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, app.shapevertical.io, there's an airdrop button on the left side of the bar. Uh, if you click on that, there should be a button that takes you to the first step. It'll detect your wallet addresses from Kepler and it'll be like, Hey, you qualify or Hey, you don't qualify. So, um, yeah, and actually, the, I'll, I'll, I'll knock on us and say our airdrop UI UX has not been prettiest. I actually think that's one of our bigger weaknesses that we carried over because it's just been like we've been more focused on the apps themselves. So if that airdrop experience is a little janky, feel free to just ping us. We'll make sure you can get you should get through it. Some people have had problems at various steps, but yeah. Cool. I know the next uh, YouTube video I'm going to be doing. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> anyone wanna... from 2021 <laughs> <laughs> just want to shout out to to mark great to see you great to have you here as well um and let's talk about bonds so uh serious crypto squatch has the question when will bonds be available but perhaps we could start with what are bonds how do they work on shade protocol yeah so bonds quite simply allow the decentralized like uh the, the shade protocol treasury we'll call it the shade DAO, to interact with the open market so like what the DAO can do is say, hey, like I have a thousand shade here. I will sell it to you at a discount to market price. Uh, like I'll say, I'll give you a 2% discount. And in return, users can come in and deposit a certain collateral. So the shade DAO can be like, I want you to give me USK or I want you to give me an LP token, right? And so it's essentially a trade. DAO gives you shade or some other asset on the treasury at a discount. And then you give the DAO... Um, the asset that it's asking for. And then the user, you know, incurs a certain waiting period anywhere between seven days, all the way up to 90 days. We actually had some 90 day uh, shade bonds. And at the end of the 90 days, they get to claim that collateral. Um, and if price, if price went up, they're super happy for the asset that they're getting in return. And it's, it's, it's somewhat of like a speculative tool, but I view it more as a, it's super powerful that the shade DAO can interact with the, with the open market. And so the bonds that I'm sure, I think, was it Mark who was, who was saying that? Uh, serious. serious yeah. yeah. Essentially, we're going to be releasing more Shade bonds February 6th. So one day before Shade Swap, the next round of Shade staking bonds will, will be going live. So they, they got maxed out. They got fully bought out pretty much in the last couple months. And the community has been wanting more of the bonds to get opened up. And there'll definitely be more of those. And once governance is fully integrated and live there'll probably be an entire assembly or senate i guess that's probably the language you're more familiar with that manages um the treasury and the bonds specifically which is cool awesome so, so just so i've got it straight in my own head um it's a mechanism for asking for certain assets you provide those assets and you'll essentially get shade at a discount and then after some time after the lockup period you'll you'll get to get those assets back, but again, at the market value. So you're, you're sort of taking exactly. on a little bit of time risk with the asset. Ex that's exactly it. And I'll just I'll just say that the treasury can give away more than shade. So like right now, the shade DAO actually issued bonds for Osmo and for Atom um, and for stake secret. So the treasury is actually passively earning staking yield right now. And it's actually earning yield for stakers technically as we speak every six seconds or whatever. And it could technically choose, the community could choose to sell those assets. Like, hey, we want to sell secret off the treasury. So we'll sell it 
at this certain price at a discount from the market. And we're going to ask for Kajira instead. Right. And then it's the little, it's the trade that happens between them. So it's a treasury management tool. It's a very late game tool. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. Cause that's one of the conversations that come up in the Kajira Senate of, okay, we have a community fund. How do we manage it? And yep. it's a, you know, it's a, it's a good question. So I think as the whole ecosystem matures, we'll get to that point of like, oh, you, you know, we're actually managing substantial funds and it can affect the, the future of the project. Um, One thing we wanted to do, we didn't know how much demand there would be for it. We've been very busy with the main products, but we wanted to open up bonds for everyone. So like any protocol could come in and issue their own bonds. So like Kajira community could come in, the wallet that manages the bonds, like is totally owned by that governance and they'd be able to permissionlessly come in and like sell Kajira for USK or like whatever that's going to look like and allow other protocols to, to just use the tool and then what, what does Shade Protocol, you know, benefit from it? It's like, well, users are coming to the website, which is a really, you know, it's a big win. Users are good. Yeah. And then maybe there would be some like micro fee, like a hey, 0.1% fee for using like a Shade, the Shade brand type of a deal. Yeah, so, kind of getting back to Web3 being composable, right? You're building yes. these components, like let's actually do the composable thing because that's how we win against legacy yep. Uh, tech. Yep, exactly. Um, I'm a little hesitant to bring this up, but I'll, I'll bring it up because it's Cosmos and there's drama all over the place. <laughs> so I don't know if you'd like to comment on the recent secret network comment. drama. No, I'm, ha I'm always happy to comment. So the trusted execution environment bug. So that's a really interesting one. So essentially two years ago, um, the United States Air Force Research Group issued a grant to six different universities, one based out of Tel Aviv, one based out of Australia, and the rest based out of the U.S., to essentially conduct research to find a vulnerability in Secret Network, right? One, pretty cool that Secret Network was selected for that, right? It speaks to the fact that there's usage, that it was live on mainnet, that it's significant. Um, two years went by, two years of research from all these tier one universities. And finally, at the end of 2022, they did find, they did find um, an exploit on a specific version. Not even all the nodes had it. It was one specific type of node. Um, it was disclosed to the protocol development team and it was patched. So pretty cool that it was a set of white hat universities doing research for two years. Now we're in correspondence with all those research institutions. And it was really, I mean, it's, it's a wake up call, right? It's, it's never good to have your privacy tech be, have someone show like, Hey, like this is possible, not good. But um, on the bright side, this has really kicked off a urgency to improve the privacy technology, to continue to harden it, to reemphasize the importance of that security. And now we have a lot of those relationships with those research institutions, which is super, super valuable. So that's my take on the trusted execution stuff. Not good, but there's some silver linings and we'll continue to grow from it. Um, related to the, the, tour, the tour stuff. So recently there was uh, a disclosure that came out from secret labs about the secret foundation and how compensation was, was handled by the secret foundation. Um, at this stage in time, I'm still collecting data on the situation. I know both of these organizations and individuals within professional settings, as well as informal settings. Um, what I can say is we need to exist in a world where public goods have excellent transparency and that have trust with the community and anything that pulls us away from transparency and trust with the public goods that are funded by the community is not ideal and not good. And it can, and it can lead, it can lead to very confusing and muddled situations. So as a builder on secret network, I'm, 
Um, it's really hard to see. I've been here. I've been here for a long time, so it's hard to see stuff like this go down. But what I do know is that we have we have an excellent community, and I think we'll continue to see the leadership organizations evolve um, for the better. Awesome, perfect answer. Uh, so we are getting some questions about testnet as well, and and how to get faucets and, and and start playing around. Is there a Discord or a place you'd like to send people who maybe have questions for the testnet? Yes. So I would for sure, if you go to shadeprotocol.io, scroll all the way to the bottom, all of the official links are there for Twitter, Telegram, and Discord. If you join the Discord and then go to the, let me just pull it up here, uh, the testing and feedback channel, uh, that is where everyone's posting their, their tickets. And specifically, there's multiple uh, moderators on there that are handing out shade uh, on testnet. So just feel free to put your, it's just a testnet address. So there's not, there's no security risks tied to that. Just like paste in your testnet address, ask for some shade um, and people can seed your wallet with shade to begin testing the app. But specifically you won't need to do that starting on Monday because shade swap will be live. So you can use that secret testnet wallet and sell your secret for all of the other things on the decks. So then you won't have to be, you don't, you don't have to worry about seeding your wallet with other unique assets. Cause that's the whole point of the, the shade swap is you'll be able to trade on testnet between these assets. Awesome. I've seen a few tweets about the Great Hunt. Uh, what is the Great Hunt? What is the Great Hunt? Um, the Great the Great Hunt is a series of incentivized test nets that ultimately empower the community to tell the core team like what they like and what they don't like. Right? Um, a protocol is only as useful as it is useful for the users. So we're trying to incentivize participation, incentivize excellent feedback that can get converted into a tangibly better user experience for you, the user. Fantastic. Um, Carter, I have just had such a great time, uh, you know, talking with you, exploring all sorts of things from stable coins to privacy. Uh, you're a font of knowledge. Thank you so much for, you know, coming to the show, for sharing your time and your expertise. Is there anything you'd like to share with folks who are watching before we close? I, I would just say that Right now in Cosmos, we're seeing, you know, the the beauty of pluralism is like everything's possible, right? And we have all these different sovereign blockchains being spun up. And it's going to be really interesting because like users have the choice, like where they're going to put their capital, um, what projects they believe in, where they want to put in their, their energy and their creativity. And I would just say, be sure to you know get like get involved like there there is an opportunity to make genuine change with these pieces of technology and there's so much humanness baked into you know this space there's a lot of brokenness right like it's a bunch of people trying to work together to make idealistic things come true but i think i think the future is very bright and so despite 2022 being a year of discouraging events i think 2023 is a year of encouraging building and i would invite you to be a part of it and to not lose hope that that we can build out fundamental attributes bake them into these protocols and genuinely make the world more fair more open source more transparent and more private couldn't have said it better myself uh, if you all would like to follow Carter, I've got his uh, Twitter details down in the description. Uh, there's also links to Shade Protocol. Uh, please give him a follow. He's got lots of great things to say uh, on these various video shows as well as on, on Twitter. 
Um, thank you all for listening for uh, almost an hour and a half now. If this has been great for you, please do all the YouTube things, like, subscribe, comment. Uh, really appreciate it. You know, it, it helps to uh, share the share the word, to give people an opportunity to have in-depth conversations like this with, with founders and builders in the crypto community. Uh, thank you, everyone. And I will see you again soon. Cheers.